Amen. Well, how many of you have heard something like the following? Um, oh, I didn't realize that you were that kind of church. Oh, well, you are a Baptist church, after all, or, um, or maybe you're getting a little too Pentecostal, right? Um, you know, we joke about that, um, but I think the reality is, is that each church carries its own uh, perception, doesn't it? You know, we're Baptists. We're straight-laced, we have this stiff upper lip, and we fight over the back row, and we don't believe in any rhythm at all. You know, we want the facts, and we want nothing more. Uh, and again, we joke about it, but I think there's a sort of unspoken divide that many of us picture is true in the church, and it goes well beyond uh, Baptist or non-Baptist. You know, maybe you hear that, uh, well, that church has a little bit too much focus on on, on doctrine, too much focus on theology, too much focus on, on knowledge. Um, or even on the flip side, maybe it's like, well, that church is a little too, a little too lovey-dovey for me, a little too emotional, a little too charismatic, you might hear. And well, we're going to look at a text today, and I think uh, I'm going to give you the big takeaway right now. Right? The problem is not too much knowledge, and the problem is not too much emotion or too much love. The problem is knowledge without love and love without knowledge. So that's what we're looking at. Um, so this is part three. Part three of, um, I guess you can call out my mini-series in Ephesians 3, and if you were here in March, you would have heard the first two parts. So I'm not going to go through and give you the, all the bullet points from the fir- those first two points, but um, just looking back, I want you to remember that Paul is writing here to encourage the Ephesians. And at the beginning of chapter three, he begins a thought. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Um, And then you'll notice right after that, maybe you have a little dash in your Bible, or you have a dot, 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 or something, but he thought it was necessary to clarify a few things before he gets to what we're going to read today, Um, before we get to verses 14 and 19. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 3. We're going to read 14 uh, to 19. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I went through a a few points in my first two messages. So again, I'm not going to give you the whole sermon, but just quickly. Uh, We came out of that with the idea that there is a purpose in all things. So remember that. Um, Even in prison, Paul saw his purpose. It was clear. He saw that his purpose was planned. And in Ephesians 1 even tells us that this plan was set forth in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the world. Paul was not an afterthought. That was one of our big takeaways. He used himself, Paul used himself, that is, as an example to spur on the Ephesians and to spur on other believers to a greater understanding of the grace of God in their life. And then he led us down this journey, right? We confronted the reality of our own sin. Paul used himself as that chief example again. He was the worst of the worst, the scum of the earth, and Paul was saved. And so if he was saved, anybody could be saved. That was his takeaway. Uh, When he said anyone, he also meant anyone. 
He said that the great mystery of the gospel that Paul mentioned in Ephesians 3, 6 was that you and I, the Gentiles and the Jews together, are now fellow heirs. We're equal members of the same body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Amen? And praise God. His big takeaway was that his grace is for us. His grace is for you. And so we were told to take comfort in the reality of that grace. Don't stay thinking about your own sin, but take comfort in the reality of the grace that is for your sin. We were saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8 says. Paul was the worst of the worst, and he was given God's grace. So if he can be saved, anybody can be saved. And if anybody can be, then that means that you can be saved. And then once we understand our sin and we understand his grace, then Paul says, go and be changed. Do not believe that you are stuck where you are. You are meant to be changed. That was how we wrapped up uh, the first half of Ephesians 3. We are meant to grow in Christ. You and I are meant to grow together as the church. So look around. This is not an individual affair that we have. You and I, Paul says, are fellow heirs together. We see that word us over and over and over and over again all throughout Ephesians. It's us, not I, not me, not you, us. Verse 10 says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known. Our mission is not meant to be in isolation, Paul says. And so knowing all of those things, see, how was that? I just summed up two sermons in about two minutes. Um, so we got about one more minute now for the rest of the sermon. Yeah. So knowing, now knowing all of these things, uh, it was vital to bring us where we are today. And so Paul is going to go into this transition. Uh, we're going to go from a prisoner's purpose to a prisoner's prayer. How's that for an alliteration? Yeah. A prayer of fulfillment of purpose. So let's pick it up again in verse 14. Look at that with me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So we have to ask ourselves, for this reason, what does that mean? For what reason? As Jonah rightly said last week, when we start a verse with something like the word but, or something like the word and, or the word for, we need to look back and we need to ask ourselves, what is that writer referring to? So let's look back. If you go back to verse 1 of this chapter, we already read it, you'll see the same words. It says, for this reason I, Paul. So you can look at that, uh, and we know that he's now picking up from where he started in verse 1. So he's back on track, so to speak. He felt like there was something that needed to be said, he said it, and now we're going to carry on. Um, and now he's going to come off of the heels of saying something transformative at the end of chapter 2. Remember, he's writing largely to a Gentile audience, and so that means anyone that's not born ethnically Jewish. Um, so look around, that's probably all of you here. Right into a people group who would have been even reviled at the time by Jews, and who likewise would not have held their Jewish neighbors with high regard. There was enmity between the two groups, two radically different groups with one thing in common now. All the readers profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's all that mattered to Paul. And so Paul writes at the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 18, this is his Therefore, this is his because of this, for this reason. Paul says, for through him, that is Jesus Christ, we both, Jews, Gentiles, anyone who believes, have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And here's the clincher. This is what Paul is directly referring to when we get to verse 14. 
in him, which is Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we can read that, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if we can get the full picture that they would have gotten uh, 2,000 years ago. You know, imagine what those words would have meant to those readers and what they mean for us, really. For centuries, they saw uh, in Jerusalem this great and this glorious and this incredible temple. They saw this place um, uh, to access who the Jews claimed to be the most high God. And the Gentiles, they were allowed in this outer court. They were allowed to go in. Uh, but as they got close to the entrance of their inner courtyards, they would have read likely a notice, essentially saying posted, warning, foreigners and uncircumcised persons that crossing this threshold, if you cross it, it is punishable by death. It was a clear sign for the visitor that there was no access. Big, bold letters, no access until now, Paul says. There's a new temple with Christ as the cornerstone. And you and I and the new believer who at one point stood there and read that no access sign, together, side by side, we are being built. The Holy of Holies is accessible wherever we go. And no, I don't think that we have this stark divide uh, of Jewish-Gentile believers today in Fayette's. Uh, but one of the great tragedies of our day is that for too many who come to the doorstep of a church, and maybe even this church, think about that, they see a no-access sign. Praise God that that is not true, that we have direct access now. There is access to the Father for anybody believes. Amen? And it is for that reason, Paul says, and it is for that reason Paul bows his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So do you see what that realization does for Paul? Paul, he's out here and he just, he gives this great truth. And what does it do for him? Where there is an understanding, there is a passion behind it. With that knowledge comes love. We see that in Paul. And really, this is the theme for the whole prayer. The reality of Christ's work is uh, in us brings Paul to a position of humility and praise. He's bending his knees here. That's his natural reaction. He can't just read that and be like, okay, let's carry on. That's good. I'm going to mark it, and I'm going to take a test on that later, and I've got the answer. Uh, Paul understands that the work that Christ has done for him and for us, and so because of his understanding, he reacts emotionally in humility. Paul cannot separate an understanding of the workings and an understanding of the love of Jesus with a heartfelt emotional reaction. They go hand in hand together. So don't forget that. So that begs the question, how do you feel about the love that Jesus has for you? I have to confess, I don't like writing that question. How does that make you feel? You know, because again, when I, when I hear that for so long, I'm like, well, feelings are subjective, right? Just because you feel something doesn't make it true, and oftentimes it's not true. Um, and so I'm wary of bringing this up because I know we can look out in the world today and we see the, there are these vital truths and there are important realities about God and about ourselves that are being abandoned and outright ignored based on nothing more than feelings. So I, I get that. I recognize that. Um, so maybe you're like me and you're tempted to say, just ignore your feelings. Ignore them. They're not important. Well, I'm sorry, but you can't. I can't. And so don't let your feelings decide what is true or false, but you cannot understand what God has done for you. 
You cannot understand how glorious God is and feel nothing. So we need to know his love and we need to feel his love. And that's Paul's prayer for us. Now you can memorize the, oh, the, the 1689 London Baptist Confessional. All right. And have no joy, no reverence, and no humility, and no love. Or you can feel all those things, but all the while you are in love with the God that you don't understand or that you don't know, and it's a superficial and fleeting moment. So do you see the danger on either side, don't you? All right, we know and love God, and rather we know and love God when we understand that we are known and loved by God. All right, Tim Keller, he's a brilliant man, um, just went to be with the Lord a few weeks ago, but he wrote uh, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Do you believe that? So Paul's prayer today is for uh, us is to know and to love God by knowing that we are known and loved by God. And so he models that for us. He bows his knees. We have this emotional, reverent reaction. Um, and then he begins by making a bold and necessary claim. He says that God is able to provide the answer to this prayer. Verse 15, look at that. It says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so in other words, he's not praying to an impotent or distant God. Isaiah 40, 26 says, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. That's the, the, the scene that they would have received. Calling them all by name by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And so Paul in that verse is saying that every creature on this earth, everyone that you see and that you know and that you love and even every angel in heaven and every enemy below who is against him, God has named and God knows intimately. And so if you're worried uh, that you feel nothing, I get it. If you're worried that you feel nothing or if you are worried that you know nothing, we have the one true, omnipotent, powerful, mighty God that is going to bring this plan to completion. You can have that assurance. That's what Paul is saying here. There is no force that can frustrate God's plan. Paul is confident that he will bring this prayer to completion. So have that same confidence. Don't write yourself off right now. You know, we all need to grow. We all need to be strengthened. And that's Paul's first prayer for us. That's our second point. We are meant to be strengthened. Look at it with me in the text. That according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so it's important to understand that this section that we're reading, all right, this prayer, it's a pivot point in Ephesians. And so Ephesians, it's really, it's divided into two halves. So we have uh, chapters one through three, which if you go through that, you're going to receive a lot of really cool truth. And it's kind of considered like the, the, the textbook, the doctrinal section. And then we get to this prayer, um, uh, which is meant for us. Um, 
And again, the first three chapters is just an absolute goldmine of this theological information. It's really cool. But then there's a shift right after this prayer. And four to six is considered this, um, this exhortation. So he's saying, let's take all that we've just learned in uh, chapters one through three, and we're going to apply that to our lives in four through six. This is how you live. Um, and so this prayer is for us to be given the strength that we need, spiritually speaking, to live the life that we are called to live in chapters four to six. And so we have to ask ourselves that question, why is he praying that? Why does he feel like that is necessary? If we need to change, if he gives us this list in chapters four, five, and six about how we should live as Christian believers, if we are called to live a certain way, Paul could have just saved some ink. He could have just wrote the second half of Ephesians. Could have said that this is what you're supposed to do as Christians. Let's look at first four, or chapter four, verse one. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Why didn't he start the book of Ephesians with that and just go from there? There must have been a reason. And I think it is because that we do not have the strength to walk in a worthy manner on our own. We don't have that strength on our own. And I know as a Mainer especially, that is hard to hear. There are things that we cannot do in our own strength. And so Paul sets us up to understand exactly what Christ has done for us. We get the full picture of his grace and a full picture of his gospel um, when we receive this knowledge and we receive this understanding in the first few chapters of Ephesians. And now Paul says, good. Now let that knowledge move and spur you on to growth and to change. That's what he's saying. If you know what God has done for you, but you don't experience his love for you, get ready for a spiritual workout. That's what Paul is saying. We already know God is able. He said that. Now, Paul is writing to, uh, to Christians, remember. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. Right? These are men and women who Paul is confident have the saving faith. And so if we're not careful, I think we can gloss over this verse. And we can think, oh, I'm a believer, right? So Christ is in my heart. I've been strengthened. Let's move on. Let's keep reading what he has to say. Well, again, he wrote this to believers. So if you are a believer, Christ dwells in your heart. We know that. And you have been strengthened through his spirit already. Um, so this is not the type of strengthening that leads to a prayer um, that lets Christ into your heart. So we have to ask again, what is it? Why is Paul saying this? Well, let's look at two important words in this verse. Look at the word strengthen and look at the word dwell. Look at strengthen for a second. Uh, the way Paul chose to write that is really, it's interesting and it's important. Uh, you lose a little bit of a meaning in the English translation, but just imagine with me for a second, okay? When you think of strengthening, in particular, uh, strengthening yourself, you would picture some sort of, I don't know, maybe exercise routine. Um, if Lisa Berry were here, she'd be thinking of, of CrossFit. I know that. Um, or maybe you're thinking of a diet or any number of disciplines that you yourself have to work hard for to begin to see the results. And so at first glance... You might be tempted to read that and think, okay, my problem is I'm just not working hard enough. I need to be better. Um, if I just change myself, if I just do things different, I can be stronger. Well, don't be fooled by that thinking. That's not going to get you out of it. Because um, we do not have the strength to walk in a worthy manner on our own. Paul is clear. When Paul wrote this, um, there's a strong sense in this word that we are being strengthened from an outside force. Okay, you get that? We are being strengthened from an outside force. He's saying that God strengthens you. According to the riches of his glory, it says, he may grant you to be strengthened. 
And so this is not a prayer, again, for physical strength. This does not mean that you're going to get a six-pack. This is strength for wisdom, strength for understanding, for moral, for spiritual fortitude, for how to take everything that we just read in one through three and apply that to our life. And so, Lord, give us the strength through your spirit and not of ourselves to be changed from the inside out. Amen? And well, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I want to be changed. I'm praying to be changed. I want to be strong. So what's wrong with me that I haven't been made strong? Just know, I hear you again. There's another important aspect here. Um, there's a reason that Paul is praying this prayer, that you are not alone, that we need strength. They need strength. Everybody in this room needs strength. Paul needs strength. Jeff Culpitz needs strength. Every pastor and elder and person that has come through this door needs strength. We never arrive at a point on this earth where we can honestly look and say that, wow, I made it. I don't need any more. Pass it on to the next guy. I've arrived finally. No, we never arrive to that point because we do not have the strength to walk in a worthy manner on our own. And yes, again, when you become Christians, you are, you are instantly strengthened and you are instantly indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we do, we understand, we see Christ as the Lord, all this stuff comes to light, but we are always growing in our strength. Every day we are, by God's grace, being made stronger. Every day, by God's grace, we are progressing one degree of glory to the next. I don't know many people that everything happened in an instant. And so keep praying for that strengthening. Just because you don't see it yet doesn't mean it's not happening and doesn't mean that it won't happen. Keep praying for that strengthening. And it is a strengthening that Paul says leads to Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. So dwell is that other key word here. Let me say this again. Know that right now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, he dwells with you, Period. Paul wrote this letter to Christians, so he knew that Christ was already dwelling in their heart, so it has to mean something else. It has to mean something on top of that. But just like we are called to grow stronger, this is an area that we are also called to grow in. I think we can make the mistake of thinking that dwelling means that, well, maybe you need to prepare the guest room. You know, but again, Ephesians 2.22, it's the verse that we build all of this off of, says, in him you are being built built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's cool. God's going to dwell with us. We'll get his bed nice and tidy. We'll put a fresh pair of sheets on there. It's going to be a great visit, right? Well, the specific word that Paul uses for dwelling uh, is not the same that you would use to describe like like a foreigner dwelling in the land. Like when it says that Abraham dwelled in a land not his own, that's not the same dwell. It's not like your in laws are coming over and sleeping in your guest room. When he prays that Christ would dwell, he says that he wants Christ to settle down in your heart and make your heart your entire self and take hold of it as its rightful owner. You're not giving him the guest room. You're going to give him the keys to your house. He said, Lord, here is my heart. Do whatever your will is with it. It's yours completely and fully now and forevermore. That is what Paul is praying. So if you're going to be growing, if you're going to be strengthening, if we want to experience his love, we can't invite him to our home and then tell him to stay out of the study. You have to give him free reign. And so is there a guest room 
Or is there a room in your house that maybe you'd rather keep hidden? If you're crying out, Lord, I want to experience your love, let me give you a suggestion. That's what my grandfather always said. Here's a suggestion. Open that door. Let him have his way. Let him strengthen you. Several years ago, my wife and I, uh, we were on the stage and we shared our testimonies. And that was scary. Um, You know, I shared struggles that I grew up with that for a really long time I was determined to keep private. And I said, Lord, you can come into my life. I'll let you peek through this door, but we're not going to let anybody else see that. And so I shared struggles of of online addictions, of same-sex attractions. The list goes on. You know, all of them, I said, the doors, they had to stay locked. All of those issues, I said, no way. No one's going to know about that. You can come in, Lord, you can have control of this house, but I'm not letting you unlock these doors. Well, praise the Lord, he broke those doors down. He didn't need the keys, he kicked it down. Um, And I'm so thankful that he did, I really am, um, because it led me to experience his love in a deeper and more meaningful way than I had ever experienced it before. I'm still breathing. He's not done yet, is he? I am growing by God's grace. And so may God grant you and me to be strengthened with power through his spirit and our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So let me tell you again, hand the keys over to Christ. Hand them over. Have faith in his promise that you will experience his love because we are strengthened to know his love. That's our third part. We are strengthened to know his love. We are strengthened to know who loves us and we are strengthened to know how much he loves us. And ultimately, that love leads us to love him deeper. Look again at the second half of verse 17. It says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is why he prays for strength, to know the love of Christ. If we are God's temple, which he says we are, our strength, the very strength of the church, of the representation of his temple, must be founded on an understanding of the love of Christ. We need to be rooted, we need to be grounded in his love for us. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Well, today is graduation day for a lot of our local high school students, so congrats. Um, You're not here, you're at the school getting ready. Um, Uh, But many of these students, they might be going off to college in the fall, and maybe they're studying something that will lead them to a future career, and I I wish them well with that. I pray a blessing over that. Um, And I think some people have had this perception of me that I really loved academics. Um, That is not true. (laughs) At all. Um, I did well in high school, right? I can say that. I was kind of that annoying kid that I was able to coast through everything pretty well. Um, I got A's, it was fine. I didn't have to do the work. And then graduation came, and all that was done. And I went off to Orono uh, to study business in the fall, not because I cared about business. I really honestly didn't know what I wanted to do after college, but um, my older brothers went to Orono. They all studied business. I figured, why not? Um, everybody had to get a college degree. That was kind of my thought. Um, I won't go down that road. <laughs> um, so I figured, why not? Right? I'll go to Orono, I'll study business. Well, I'll tell you why not. I hated business school. <laughs> um, I was so uninterested in learning in college. 
But I knew I needed to get a degree, um, and I knew I had to pass my classes to carry on, so I went, but I went from a high honor student to, well, C's get degrees, don't they? <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. Well, long story short, um, I couldn't take it anymore. After two years um, of business school, I knew I still needed a degree, um, so I switched. I switched my majors to ecology. Surprise. Um, with a focus on forest ecology, which was a little bit better. I figured I liked being outside, so it's worth a shot, um, but I slept through half my soil science class. Um, and the idea of staying up late to study the taxonomy of vascular plants was repulsive to me. I was... I figured I could wing it, why not? You know, it's just a bunch of Latin names, how hard can it be? Um, it was pretty hard, turns out. Um, well, well, I stuck with it, uh, and eventually I survived college, um, but I was thrilled when I graduated. I was thrilled when I left, because I came to the undeniable conclusion that schooling was just awful. That I would never take a class so long as I shall live. <laughs> well, about uh, two years passed, and then I was married, um, I had moved back in this area, I was plugged into this church, and then they announced that there was a hermeneutics class offered uh, here through New England Bible College and Seminary um, by Dr. Lambertson, who, by the way, I think is coming back this fall. Um, so that's my plug for him. He changed my life. And so praise the Lord, I went to that class. Um, and I mostly went because I didn't know what hermeneutics was. Um, and I was like, okay, I need to figure that out. Um, but I went to audit at the time. I said, I am never going to be forced to do homework again, so I'll go to the class, I'll learn, and then we'll go home, and I have no obligation. Yeah. So I went to my first class, I got the syllabus, I bought the books, and I went home, and I read the books, and I took part in the discussion, and I did the homework that I didn't have to do, and I signed up for the next semester, and this time I took it for credit, and I wrote an email to my professor that I actually enjoyed the homework, and this is a little weird for me. Um, I looked forward to it. I went from someone who had sworn off all schooling. I said it was a waste of time, um, and now I'm, I'm joyfully enrolled in a master's program. Um, so let me ask you, what changed? It wasn't the workload. It wasn't the commitment. It wasn't the expectations. It was the fact that I loved, I love what I'm learning about. I was strengthened. I didn't care about my classes in college. I just knew I was supposed to take them and finish them, and it led me to resent it. it. led me to resent schooling. But I love my seminary classes. I love the work that New England Bible College and Seminary is doing through this church. I care about the content. I want it to do well because I want to understand it. If you do not love what you are supposed to learn, you will resent it. It will become a chore. If you love what you learn, you will always be looking for more. And so I have confidence now in my schooling because that there is a love for it. I don't think about changing majors. I don't think about switching classes. There is a confidence that was not there with my undergrad. And here we see that it is through his love for us that gives security in what Paul is saying. His love for us is what roots us and grounds us. Christ's love provides stability. Our salvation is not a chore to God. We are not resented. We are not an unnecessary burden. We are chosen before the foundation of the world, Paul says earlier in Ephesians. We are made alive together with Christ because of the great love with which he loved us. The first half of Ephesians makes that abundantly clear. The whole Bible makes that abundantly clear. We are loved by an almighty, 
all-powerful, all-good, all-perfect God of the universe. We are strengthened to know that love, which Paul says leads to more strength to understand more love. So look at that again. You, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, so to understand with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Understanding his love is foundational to knowing something that surpasses knowledge, which is his love. His prayer is that we as believers in Christ would know the intensity with which Christ loves us, which is unimaginable. To know love, we need to know love. Some of you scratching your heads and getting a little confused there. But when we know Christ loves us, we will have an assurance in him and we will understand his love even more. And when we experience his love for us, we can understand his love for us more, which lets us experience his love for us, which lets us understand his love for us, which lets us experience his love for us, which goes on and on and on. Do you understand how that works? And this might seem like an impossible task, so don't skip by that again. Do we understand a love that will never, or how do we understand, rather, a love that will never be fully known? Well, the joy of knowing is that his love is so vast, so unimaginably massive, is that there is always more for us to know. We will have an eternity knowing more and discovering more about how God loves us, and we will never run that well dry. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, in love, in love, not burden, not out of necessity, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, but God being rich in mercy, why? Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In other words, he strengthened us. 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So have we fully grasped that? Well, no, we haven't. Are we in awe of that? Well, there is more awe in store for us. We will never know all that there is to know about his love. That is what Paul is saying. But we have the joy and we have the privilege of knowing him and growing in that knowledge of his love. And if you've been paying attention, you've heard me say knowing and understanding a lot. And yes, that is vitally important. We need to know. Intellectually, we ought to understand, but we need to know the love of Christ. And to know the love of Christ is to know its fullest extent. In the full biblical sense of the word, to know. And so that word brings out uh, this, this experience that we are to know. Paul wants us not just to know intellectually, but he wants us to experience the love of Christ, to feel with your emotions the love of Christ, which goes beyond just intellect. And so we have the joy of knowing and growing and experiencing, feeling his love. And you know what that does? It gives us stronger roots. It gives us a more solid foundation, which leads to knowing and growing and experiencing his love in a deeper way which leads to knowing and growing in a deeper way, and so on, and so on, and so on, on and on and on it goes. And Paul prays that it will be more so than it is now for you and me. So may we be strengthened 
As Paul says, may we have the strength to comprehend with all the saints together. Let us grow together with all the saints, Paul says. Knowing more, experiencing more, and loving more from now into all of eternity. Amen? Amen. You can sum up those verses quickly with more, more, more. To know God more is to know his love more truly and deeply. And the tremendous love of God will provide incentive and motivation and strength to know and love him more because we are loved to love. It's our final point. It's a quick one. We are loved to love. That brings us to the, the, really the crescendo of Paul's prayer. I'm not a musical guy. I think I used that term right, crescendo. Um, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. He prays that we, you and I, finite beings, would experience God's infinite fullness, his infinite love, his infinite joy, his infinite peace. Paul is praying that we would be filled and filled and filled and filled and filled with the experience of the love of God from the moment of understanding and conversion forevermore. Saying that God has an infinite supply to pour out on us. And so look at it another way. To be filled with the fullness of God is to be completely, totally captured by Jesus and his love for you. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, it says, For in him, which is again Jesus, all the fullness of deity, the fullness of God, dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. In that fullness you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So do you want a summary of Paul's prayer? Everything that we talked about today, Christ's power, Christ's love, strengthening, dwelling, experiencing the love of Christ, boils down to the prayer, be filled with the fullness of God. In other words, he prays that we would be so full, so overflowing with the power and the love of God that we would walk in a way that the only logical conclusion to ourselves and to anybody else around us is that God is working in our hearts. He prays that we would know, we would understand, we would experience, we would feel God in such a way that ourselves and God's very self coincide, that they become one. And so he builds up to that point later in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. He says, therefore, this is his charge at the end, be imitators of God. As what? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you know that you are beloved? Do you feel that you are beloved? And do you walk like you are beloved? Are you modeling your life after the one who gave himself up for us? Because we can get so close, we can understand, we can begin to feel, but we can miss the point altogether. He strengthens us, he loves us, so now our only option is to show that love to others. So my prayer is the very same that Paul prayed to the Ephesian church, where we lack knowledge, pray that we would pursue it. Or we lack a feeling of love, I pray that we would experience it. And then now let us walk. Let us walk this walk that we are on together in a way that is meant to be all-encompassing of God. And so praise God that there is grace for me. Praise God that there is grace for you. And we're going to close in a second. But I want to leave you with the verses in Romans 8. Because I'm really hoping... I hope that you didn't just hear me give this sermon and feel like we're stuck, feeling like we're so far behind where we ought to be. I'm really hoping you don't leave that way. Because again, nobody here has attained perfect knowledge. Nobody here has attained perfect love. 
So please don't condemn yourself if you know that you need to grow. That's why we read this prayer. Everybody needs to grow. But go here with the assurance that growth will come more and more and more. His love will transform your life. Just listen to these words in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will, be, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to, get, put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, they have Baptist church, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a beautiful truth that we just read. And we cannot be separated from your love. And yes, everybody in this room myself included, we have a long way to go. We are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There is more that we need to know and there is more that we need to feel and there is uh, more that we need to love. And so Lord, I pray right now the same prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church 2,000 years ago that applies to us today. Lord, would we know more? Would we understand more? Would we feel and experience more? Would that knowledge lead us to emotional reactions? Lord, would we not shy away from those? Would we dig into that? Lord, would you use that knowledge and would you use that love that we experience to, in turn, look out and love our neighbor and love everybody around us? And we know ultimately it is not in our power that we do this, so we give it up to you. We're giving you the keys to our heart. We're saying, have your way. So do what needs to be done. If there's a door that needs to be knocked down, would you knock it down? If there's someone that we need to apologize to, would we apologize? If there's a, a quiet time in the morning that we're neglecting in your word, would we work hard to bring that back into our lives? Would we know you more? Would we feel you more? Would we love you more? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.